Hello, my name's Karen O'Connor, and you're listening to Isn't That Interesting? Hello and welcome. Today I'm here with Hannah Studley. Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, that's great. You got it. <laughs> um, we've just been chatting behind the scenes because it turns out we've been in pretty much every place at the same point in our lives, which is a bit bizarre. <laughs> but welcome to yeah. the podcast. Yeah, I, I'm so grateful that you reached out to me a couple of months ago and apologies for it taking so long to actually get to this point. Tell me a bit about yourself. Let's start there. Tell me about what you do now and how you got to where you are. I think that's probably the best place to start. Sure. So I grew up in England, like you, and I, I did textiles in college and ended up working in the film business. I went from the theater to commercials, to TV, to movies. And I did special effects for probably 20 years. Started in London and ended up in California. So I lived in California for about 16 years, which, which is why my accent is all over the place. And I, I, I was known for making copies of real animals. I worked with Jim Henson's Creature Shop most of the time, even though I was freelance. So I got to work on the most wonderful, amazing family movies like Babe, a talking pig movie. It was filmed in, in Australia. And I worked with John Travolta and Steven Spielberg and, and like really big stuff, which was amazing. It blew my mind every day that I was I had the privilege and blessing to do this. But I trained as a coach back in college. When I was a student, I trained with Manchester Rape Crisis Centre which is, it's alarming now to think that there were actually only two rape crisis centers in the country at the time. There was one in London and one in Manchester. So we were trained to answer the hotline and go and talk to community groups, to, to women's groups, to lawyers and nurses, anybody who would come in contact with women who'd been in, in difficulty. So I had this, that was my foundation training as a counselor and as a coach. So in between all the movie stuff and the theater work I was doing, there's always time off because not every movie has a talking animal in it. <laughs> so there would be time off in between movies. And so I would continue doing this coaching and counseling work. In California, I worked with a lot of people with addictions and trauma. And I became a trauma coach because in my 20s, I experienced a lot of trauma. I was actually mugged three times, which is bad enough if you're mugged one time, but three times. And it was the early 80s, so PTSD was only just being recognized as a diagnosis at the time. And so I didn't get any treatment. Not that I really believe in treatment now, but I didn't get any help. Basically, I was told, go home, get a cup of tea, suck it up and walk it off. <laughs> that, that's, what, that's the kind of treatment I was given. And so I became very ill for those um, few years. I, um, my experience with PTSD was um, being frightened to go out, being very hypervigilant, but being... Um, the sound of footsteps behind me, even on a beautiful sunny day in California, years later, would alert my nervous system. That's fueled a lot of the self-help and transformational work I was doing and sharing what I was learning with other people. And this kind of continued. And I now live in Jerusalem in Israel. And about six years ago, I came across a new paradigm in psychology called the Three Principles, which I'm happy to share more with you about that. And it put everything into place. I found when you find something, just all the puzzle pieces come together. And I found a, a vocabulary for what I'd been suspecting all the time, which is that we can never be broken, that we are innately well. And it's only when we get caught up in our thinking that we think there's something wrong and then we get ourselves anxious. And then that's when physical things start going wrong because our bodies are translating that stress into physical messages to wake us up. 
in the last say six or seven years, I've been working mostly with people with physical issues. I've written three books. The first one was about trauma. The second one was about chronic pain. And the latest one is about hormones. And my books are novels. I found by putting all this information into stories, it really helps people to digest that information because I'm weird. I love reading research and science, even though I'm not a scientist. But for your average overtired mom and overwhelmed teacher and people who do you want to read another textbook? No, I, so I found putting it into stories really helps to get the message across and, I, and people have been really receptive to that. So the latest book is called Very Well. And it was an Amazon number one bestseller for a few days. Yay, we'll take that win. <laughs> yeah, so that kind of, I guess that kind of brings you up to now what I'm doing. I'm writing and coaching and, and reaching out and helping people. Yeah. I was saying to you before we started, when I was reading mm -hmm. your book, there was so many, like I'm going through it and I'm going, oh my God, we can talk about hormones. Oh my God, no, we need to talk about the three principles. Oh my God, no, we need to talk about the pain thing. Like, <laughs> <laughs> as well. Because that was the other thing I found really fascinating because I'm experiencing a little bit of the sex discrimination at the moment and realising how much, how hidden it is, how it's there's a real undercurrent of it. Mm. And until you become aware of it, and once somebody points right. it out, I was just like, oh, oh, my goodness, this is, I don't believe that's actually patronizing it was patronizing but actually discriminatory and you talk about freud yeah. and who was it amy a bertha the woman that he <laughs> he was so bad anna, yeah, anna. talk to me about that because that kind of stuff was are you okay to talk about that i do want to talk about hormones as well but can we start with the freud thing talk to me about that yeah i'd never been a fan of his just to give him some credit, he was one of the first people to realize that we spend a lot of our time up in our heads, reliving our past. Before that, people hadn't really made that connection. So I will give him the credit for that. But he then didn't know what to do with that, that realization. And so his idea was to blame our default kind of or defective soul. And he described us as dark beasts, like creatures of conflict. And just to jump forward a little bit, if you've ever heard someone talk about a near-death experience, I don't know if you've read Anita Morjani's books, she talks this beautiful language about, they always describe the light at the end of the tunnel, the that expanse, that glory, the expansiveness of the like being free of their body. Nobody talks about beasts and darkness and stuff like that. So Freud, I think that's where he went off into some, he innocently got misled by the heaviness of the thinking that he was hearing from his clients and from himself, because he was quite a tortured soul. <laughs> he was a, a, an admitted cocaine addict. He, he really thought we had penis envy. Really? <laughs> he had all these weird ideas like the Oedip Oedipus complex. The Oedipus complex isn't the story he tells us that it is. It's a weird story for sure. And he makes it into something else and he bases a pseudoscientific theory based on a legend. And, and in the book, I, I make a comment, that's like me basing a, 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 a theory or a therapy on a movie. And then he, so this is where I started getting really frustrated with him is he's presenting his ideas as science. And there's absolutely zero science to back it up. So these days when I meet people and they say things like, oh yeah, but trauma is held in the body. I go, really? Where? 
I'm a little sarcastic. So <laughs> my British humor. So I say, is it in my elbow? Is it in my stomach? Is it in my spleen? Is the resentment at my mother in my knees? What do you mean it's helping? They go, no, it's memories. I'm like, yeah, but memories aren't in the body. They're thinking, they're in the mind. And then people say, yeah, but I feel it in my stomach or I feel it in my chest when I get anxious. I said, absolutely. But that's the nervous system reacting to your thinking right now. So that's where I saw, I separated with Freud in terms of he, he was focusing on the past as like somehow contaminating and infecting us now when the past actually doesn't exist unless we think about it. And then Bertha, the, I'll hold it up. See, there's, here's the book. <laughs> so on the cover is Bertha Pappenheim. She was actually one of his first clients or his colleagues' clients. And she was suffering terribly with what they then called hysteria. And hysteria is basically probably women with menopause or some kind of neurological problem. They, men didn't understand. So they just wrote us off as being hysterical. And that's why witches are burnt. And you know, <laughs> the whole history of how women have not been understood because the people who could read and write and were educated saw men's bodies as perfect and women's bodies as messy or a man's body turned inside out or all kinds of weird things they would say. And most of the people didn't even know what a woman's body looked like because they were priests because they were the only people who could read and write at the time. And we've inherited this kind of, like you said, this kind of sexist attitude towards women. And so they decided that Bertha, which was her real name, Bertha Pappenheim, they decided she had hysteria. And it was actually Bertha who came up with the idea of the talking therapy because she was a very smart lady and she could talk and talk. And they decided to listen to her, which was the birth of psychoanalysis. And then when they felt that they'd gotten what they needed, they abandoned her. They claimed that they cured her. She was the first person to be cured by psychoanalysis. But records show that she ended up in a sanitarium addicted to morphine, having electric shocks and electric eels and all kinds of horrible treatments. And she actually got herself well. And she went on to become a social worker and she set up orphanages and saved kids from the Nazis and an incredible woman. And we don't know about her. And yet everybody knows about Freud. And like you said, it, Freudian theories have seeped into nearly every therapy you can think of. And yet it's based on, on nothing but his opinions, which in my opinion were. <laughs> he was a fabulous salesman. That was what he was good at. He was good at sales yeah. and self-promotion. Yeah, we're still talking about him like 100 years later and and there's no substance to what he he shared and yet Bertha, someone like bertha who did incredible work to help women and children nobody's heard of her he was brilliant at marketing <laughs> yeah i'm getting visions of what's that circus what was the the circus guy around the same time or um, a little bit earlier but that's he was really good at self-promotion and everything and and it, yeah so i know who you mean yeah, mm -hmm. I can't think of the name. Got on yeah. menopause moment. But yeah, gonna complete. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, with regards to <laughs> hormones and stuff, how mm -hmm. does because I put up a post the other day and I said I find it really interesting that, <laughs> and I don't know if this impacts you on a religious basis. I apologise, but that there's this massive belief that Eve was made from Adam's rib when. Genetically, that can't happen. It can happen the other way around, but it can't happen that women come from men. Just this constant belief that there's something wrong with women because we're not men and because men don't understand us is still pervasive today, isn't it? Even in the way we deal with 
women's mental and health issues, it's an issue. Mm -hmm. As much as I'm really excited that menopause is being more spoken about now, I'm a little nervous it's going to go to the extreme that it, it's an illness. A lot of the time it's described as an illness and therefore you need medication. Now, I, I have no judgment about medication. I've used it. I've not used it. I have no judgment about everybody needs to do what they feel comfortable in, and helps them the best because our bodies are very different in terms of what they respond to. But we're not ill. Menopause and or all parts of our cycle are normal and natural. That was the point of, of the book in terms of the, the hormone part of it is that we're often like when I was a teenager or in my 20s and maybe early 30s, and I would have a really difficult time each month, I thought there was something malfunctioning in my body. And that was another thing I wanted to cover in the book, some science about how it's not malfunctioning. It's a normal cycle. And maybe my reaction to the normal cycle is what is actually creating my experience. And it's the same of menopause. We actually our hormone levels come back around to what they were when we were teenagers before menstruation. And we didn't need drugs. We didn't need medication <laughs> when we were in our teens, when we were going through studying our development and studying men menstruating. So why is it we need them in, in menopause? So I, I'm all for balancing things, but we are not ill. That's one of my you know big messages is it's not an illness. Yeah. And I think what you're saying and what you say in the book and, and something that I've become really passionate about over the last few years is a lot of the concerns come from either misinformation or no information at all because it's not spoken about. And so just yeah. this kind so, of yeah, sharing. It's, it's good to get it out. Yeah, because mm -hmm. it, it's it was always one of those behind the hands, the women's issues things. We don't talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> How different would it be if we came at this from the, and, and is this, talk to me about the three principles and where that comes in with all this. How does, talk to me about how you go through what you do in the book, I think is the best way of saying it. Talk to me about what you go through in the book with this. I actually, I'm postmenopausal now. I, when I was, I was in perimenopause for probably 10 years. And it was pretty bad. I had, uh, towards the end of it, I had hot flushes every 20 minutes, which is very hard to function when you're having every 20 minutes. And also I was starting to have these kind of dizzy spells before each hot flush, like where it, do you remember the Energizer Bunny ads? Like the, keep going. And it was like my batteries were taken out and I go, Ugh. and I couldn't, and it wasn't just brain fog like you, like you find the mayonnaise in the freezer kind of silliness. It was, I could not find the words in my head that I knew were there. It was like, I think in the book, I describe it as trying to think through molasses or fog without the lights on. And it was becoming very hard to function. And it was around that time where I found this new psychology called the three principles. So briefly, I'll just describe what that is, which is actually quite hard to put into words because it's almost, it's almost an, an understanding of how everything else works. I guarantee you, if you were to boil down everything from Freudian analysis to NLP, CBT, DBT, EMDR, EFT, BBC, like on and on, like there's so many different therapies out there. They, I hear of a new one every week. I guarantee you, if you boil them down, you will come to three principles. A hundred years ago, William James, who's regarded as the father of um, modern psychology, he actually 
said in, in one of his books that there are principles in all sciences. For example, if I pick up a pen here, gravity, it goes down. It doesn't go left on Tuesdays. There, there, there are principles to gravity. There are principles to biology and chemistry, all, every, all sciences. And he said, I know that psychiatry, psychology has principles. I just don't know what they are yet. So about 30 years ago, a Scottish man by the name of Sidney Banks had a, what you could call an enlightenment experience. Um, he was actually in Canada at the time. And he saw that we are always feeling our thinking, that we live in a thought created world. So how does that apply to, to menopause? So one of my very first questions was, okay, I get that I'm always feeling my thinking, but what about hormones? <clears throat> you, you can't say hormones are thinking. So I'm not saying that hormones are thinking because they are made of chemicals, that, that we, our whole bodies are made of chemicals and water and all kinds of minerals and stuff. But as they're doing their job, they're creating an experience. So how would I know that I just had a hot flush? How would I know that I can't, that I'm feeling that little bit of anxiousness because I can't find the words or maybe somebody's noticing my, that I'm hot? I, all my experience is created through thought, through thinking. And depending on my state of mind, which is consciousness, which is another one of the principles, it's thought, mind and consciousness. As my consciousness or state of mind is going up and down, that's going to affect how I experience things. If I'm in a low mood, if I'm anxious and worried and I have a hot flush, it's, oh my gosh, I can't believe this is happening. It's not fair. I'm taking all these drugs and I'm doing everything they say and I've changed my diet and I'm hysteric. Can you hear all that tension? My brain is going to pick up on that reaction and my brain's going to think I'm in some kind of danger and then it's going to switch on the fight or flight response and that's going to magnify it and get worse which is what I meant by when I was in my 20s and 30s I always felt like a magnifying glass had been put on anything I was you know feeling at the time and that's the stress response on top of the hormone fluctuation by understanding my reaction to what's happening in my body is actually creating a lot of my experience. I learned that I didn't have to be frightened by it. In fact, that's one of Sid Banks's famous quotes, which is, if only we could learn not to be afraid of our own experience, that would change the world. And I can tell you it's changed my world. Because when I started seeing that the, what was happening to me was normal and natural, and if I didn't overreact to it, it actually reduced the symptoms and my symptoms pretty much went away um, because I started noticing that 90% of it was my stress response to it. So yes, there are hormones going up and down and it does change our temperature and we can get a little bit brain foggy and all those things can happen. But when I have a, um, a much calmer response to it, the symptoms can go away. And I've had women read my books who have had things like PMDD, which is a very extreme version of PMS. Their symptoms have gone away. Postpartum depression, women have gotten better because so much of it is a stress response. And when you understand how that works, it takes away a lot of the fear of it. So how does that apply to, because your second book was pain-free, wasn't it? And that's about chronic pers persistent pain, I'm assuming. Yes, that's where I really started seeing this mind-body connection happening. Because when I, I mentioned earlier, I had these traumatic events happen in my 20s. I actually received a lot of injuries. My skull was fractured, my neck was broken, and I had three herniated discs. And I had chronic pain for 25 years. 
I would have these pain flare-ups where the muscles in my back would like squeeze and it would lift my pelvis out of place. I used to describe myself as Marilyn Monroe on one side and Audrey Hepburn on the other side. Right? It was like I would literally, my body would be that twisted. I, I had a walking stick by the time I was 27 years old. And that was the, the most, when I discovered the three principles, I was excited about it just because I was interested in self-help and transformation. And I got very into it to the point where I went to London to train as a practitioner. When I went to London for this course for six months, I stopped my monthly chiropractic appointments, which I'd been going to for 25 years um, because I needed to save money because I was traveling. All the situations where my back would have flared up and got um, very angry at me, um, but it didn't. My, I have been pain free now for six, seven years after being paralyzed several. I was rushed into hospital from theater and movie sets sometimes because I couldn't move my legs, um, which was terrifying. And now not only am I pain free, but I stopped treatment. <laughs> I, I've not been to the chiropractor in years. Nothing wrong with chiropractors. They're amazing, but I just don't need it anymore. Often they would tell me that my sciatica pain, which used to shoot down to my ankles, was because I have one leg longer than the other, and that makes my pelvis slightly slanted. My pelvis is still slightly slanted. I still have one leg longer than the other, and I don't have any pain. <laughs> I also had IBS. I had eczema, asthma, chronic allergies, all, all kinds of like minor, you know, what they call psychosomatic kind of conditions. And I never thought of myself as a sick person, but I would have these things, the allergies every spring, and then the asthma came when I was in college, just one thing after the other. And that's all gone too. And I really believe it's because as I started to understand these ideas, my thinking slowed down. I felt safer in my own skin and therefore my brain got the message I was safe. And so it didn't need to keep producing these chronic pain situations, which were really messages. It was like my body was screaming at me that I was too much up in my head with insecurity, with anxiety, with worrying what you thought about me, all kinds of situations where I didn't actually think I was anxious, but I, was I wasn't present. I wasn't in the moment. And now I'm more in the moment. My, my brain has got the message I'm safe, so it doesn't need to produce the pain anymore or the IBS or the menopause symptoms. Very mild. I, I hardly have anything anymore. So that's, I think it's a, like I said, we're living in a thought created world. And if your thought created world is scary and dangerous, then your brain and your nervous system are going to react to that, no matter what your circumstances are. You could be, like, I remember being on the beach in California, totally fine. And I'd be like, <gasps> but what if, right? So we're actually living in the feeling of that stressful thinking. And now my thinking isn't that stressful hardly ever anymore. Don't need any pain. So that's how I see the connection. It, it's really fascinating because I can think of quite a number of people who wouldn't necessarily consider themselves to be anxious, but they just wouldn't. But they are constant what ifs and no, I can't. That's, that's right. what comes out of their yeah. mouth all the time. Yeah, I was the same. I've only just realized in the last year and a half, I'd say, just how anxious I was because I, I never saw it as anxiety. I'll give you a quick example. And I was reading this in one of the pain management books I was reading. He, he gives the example of imagine you were invited to a, a drinks party at someone's house and it's called for 8 p.m. 
So I don't know if you're like me, but um, if I'm driving there, I've got to find a parking space and I've never been to that neighborhood before. So maybe I'll arrive a little bit early to make sure I've got a parking space. And there's a parking space right there around the corner. And you're like, oops, it's 10 to eight. You can't walk into a social event 10 minutes early. That's really, so you sit in your car and you're playing on your phone and you're playing the radio or whatever. And 10 minutes is a really long time if you're sitting there on your own playing on the phone and it gets to 8 p.m. And you're like, oh, great. And you're like, yeah, but I can't walk in exactly at 8 p.m. because that's really nerdy, right? Nobody walks in at 8 p.m. For a, for a cocktail event, right? So then you have to sit in your car a little bit longer. So you're like, okay, how long do I wait? Five minutes, 10 minutes? What is quite a cool late? You don't want to be flaky late. And then you see someone walking, you're like, oh, now I can go in, right? <laughs> now, I never saw that as anxiety. I saw that as doing it the right way. I've been responsible. I found my parking space. Now I'm, and now I'm going to arrive at the right time. So you're all that right and wrong. That's a lot of pressure, right? That is a lot of pressure I'm putting myself under and it's all happening up here in my head. It's not happening out here. The people invited me. They just want you to come and have a good time. <laughs> and there I am like, now I never saw that as anxiety or I'll give you another quick example. You know how in a parking lot, car park, whichever language we're speaking, they paint white lines <clears throat> on the tarmac to tell you where to park your car. And you know how there's always that idiot who carts a little bit too close to the white line and then you can't, you ding your car. It's got nothing to do with me. And I'm watching how other people are parking their cars, right? I'm like, now I knew I was very judgmental. I just thought it was me being judgmental because I was right. Take a minute and park your car properly, right? But I now see the anxiety involved in that because there's some kind of feeling of danger if it's not done the right way then there's going to be chaos. And if there's chaos, then where does that leave me? <gasps> Can you feel the anxiety now? And so my brain, which doesn't speak English and is stuck in this box and only has my senses like sight and smell to rely on. If it's getting danger messages because that your neighbor parked their car wrong or the music's too loud or whatever it is we think is not right then my brain is thinks I'm in danger all the time. Not like crisis danger, but like a mild river of danger. And I think that's why my back was always sore, why my stomach was playing up, why my menopause symptoms were really bad. And there's a lot of science to back it up when you've gone through some kind of trauma. And it doesn't have to be like a like violence or rape. It can be just like constant feeling unsafe. Then our nervous systems get trained to, to be, I'll say hyper-reactive because overreacting doesn't sound flattering. <laughs> I didn't overreact. I was hyperreactive because <laughs> I was right. I wasn't, I'm not wrong. Can you hear the judgment? <laughs> oh my God, this is embarrassing. But I, I tell you, since I've understand these principles and, and become like practitioner in this, my friends have actually know, commented that my personality has softened. And I think I was a little offended at first, but I, I see they're right because as I've slowed down, and I've seen that actually the world is a safe place and it's working just fine the way it is. Yes, we could get into politics, but we're not going to. But I feel safe in the world now. I know what I'm doing and that what other people are doing isn't any of my business. Then I can make much wiser decisions about where I am and what I'm doing and who I speak to. And, and I'm coming from a place of wisdom and, and calmness and peace now. And I can navigate difficult situations and navigate things that used to baffle me by using the common sense I was born with, which was covered up before by the anxiety. <laughs> and that's freedom. When you feel free, 
then your nervous system's going to appreciate that. And, and that's why I think my, all the pain went away. That's really interesting. That's opened up a whole gamut of things because you, that low-level anxiety that you're talking about, that is how we live today, isn't it? Like I go out in the car and I am at my most judgmental when I'm driving my car. I've got to, <laughs> I've got to say that anything else I can handle, but I get behind the car and I'm a monster. <laughs> And, but it is, I get out of the car and I'm exhausted. I hadn't even put my finger on that before. It is exhausting. Yeah, it is. But what if you could see that the thinking you're having is just passing through? If you think of it like clouds or, or traffic, or even like in those news shows where there's like a ticker tape of information, like CNN, where they have the news and the weather report and baseball results and all that kind of stuff going along the bottom that ticker tape is constantly moving and it doesn't need you to read it. It's going to keep moving. Clouds, I could notice whether they're black or gray or white, but they're going to keep moving. Thought is moving all the time. It's some kind of spooky spiritual energy, which I will start moving my hands around when I start talking about this because I don't have the words for spooky and spiritual. Mystical, it's incredible. It's how we experience everything. And I know it can feel like it gets stuck sometimes, but what if it's just repeating? What if it's constantly moving? And when I saw that my thinking was always moving, it didn't matter if I had an anxious thought or a judgmental thought. I didn't have to watch it. It's just, it's like Bob, the homeless guy is talking to you and you're like, okay, yeah, fine, whatever. <laughs> you don't have to listen to every thought you've ever had. And I think I work with a lot of women with um, health anxieties and, and all kinds of insecurities. And, and most of the problem is, that they're listening to their insecure and anxious thinking and then living in that feeling and then the body's reacting and then the world is a very scary dangerous place like i felt after the violence i went through but that's it's actually not true most of my thinking is quite unreliable i'd say like i've actually lost interest in a lot of my own thinking right and that's freedom because Whilst I was overthinking all my problems, I'm not present with you. Whilst I'm overthinking what's the right time to arrive, did I wear the right shoes? What will you think of me? What if I make a mistake? What if you don't like me? I've just missed part of my life up in my head thinking about it. One of my teachers is a retired psychiatrist. And one of his lovely sayings is, we're either in our thoughts or we're in our lives. And I found that being present is a lot less exhausting. Being present is much more peaceful. And when I'm present, I have all the wisdom and courage and resilience and common sense that I need to handle each situation. In fact, overthinking it usually got me nowhere. And being present, you're available for fresh and new. And that's really a much beautiful place to live. Isn't that interesting? Because the way we are taught on the whole until we learn something like this is that we need to think our way through something before we take any action. Yeah, it's analyzing. I think there's a, 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 I think it's Einstein who said you cannot solve a problem from the same level of consciousness that caused it. So if overthinking something caused my problem, then overthinking it some more <laughs> isn't going to fix it, right? So what I found is in a low mood, you, it, it's really hard to have helpful, happy, constructive, creative thinking. 
there is no good information in the low mood. In fact, what I've seen more clearly recently is the low mood is the information I need, which is stop it. This is not the right time to make a decision. This is not a good time to try and work something out. You're only going to come up with negatives. So I found that if I pause or it could be the next morning, it could be five minutes later, it could be five hours later. When I've slowed down, then you go, oh, that's what I could do. Like when you're trying to find your keys, you're like, where are my keys? Where are my keys? Or a better one is like trying to remember the name of a, that actress. She was in that movie with Tom Hanks. What is her name? What is her name? And whilst you're trying to think of it, you can't. And then an hour later, you go, Meg Ryan, right? When we slow down, we have this incredible capacity for imagination and creativity and inspiration. But when we speed up, it gets very constricted and confined. And see, my shoulders even went up. Our bodies get constricted and blood isn't flowing properly and our thinking isn't flowing well. And we're caught up in the illusion of the thinking. And so when we slow down, we actually have all the answers we need and, and you get to access them when, when we're more peaceful. It's very peaceful just talking to you now. I get it. That, that's the point I'm making. It's that everything's just calmed down, which is just wonderful. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you this from mm-hmm. a, a different perspective. I, I can't remember whether you covered it in the book, but in general, <clears throat> People would rather, and this is a generalisation, so apologies, people would rather put up with Mm -hmm. a situation that they're not comfortable with than go into, than than give that up and do something new. How does this play out in that kind of scenario? You're right. I know I was like that myself. I would rather, I stayed in a lot of physical pain for many years when there were obviously alternatives. I did try a lot of treatments, but the treatments never worked because the problem was in my thinking. So if we are in a situation that's difficult, it could be a a relationship, a marriage, it could be angry teenagers or like something that you can't just walk away from, hopefully. Then what I've seen is the situation or the other person involved doesn't actually have to change for me to feel better. That was an obsession I had for Ever. And what I used to even share with my clients when I was coaching is I, I thought the way I felt was because of the relationship, the weather, even the football results, the, the ex-boyfriend, my mother, the government, you name it. Something else was creating my experience. If they would only behave, then I'd be OK. If only it would stop raining, then I'll be OK. If only the football team wins, then I'll be OK. Right? <laughs> Whatever it was, job, career. If I lose a few pounds, then I'll be okay, whatever it was. But what I realized is you can, it's a lot of work to change those things. And then let's say you could change those things. With that kind of belief system, something else is going to annoy the hell out of you, right? Because we're looking outside, we're blaming the outside stuff for how we feel when actually it's coming from the inside. So the language I would use is, Blaming the outside is like an outside-in understanding of how the world works. What I'm suggesting and pointing to is actually it's an inside-out experience. Because like I said, we're feeling our thinking. So let's say you had angry teenagers in the house. Then I can't believe that they don't tidy their room. I can't, they're so annoying. I can't believe they didn't tell me that they were coming home later than they said. Can you hear all that's going on in my head? And then if I then try and talk to an angry teenager from that judgmental thinking, 
it's probably not going to go well. I, I don't have my own kids, but I was a school teacher for five years and I did not get on well with the teenage students, the older kids, because it was really like this. They were doing it wrong and they had to do it my way. And I'm the teacher, so deal with it. And that's not the way to work with teenagers. But I got on great with the little kids because with the little kids, I don't know, there, was, there wasn't so much pressure. I didn't feel pressure. And so I could be goofy with them. And so we would have a good time. But the funny thing about that is the school I taught in, the science teacher, she was terrified of the little kids and she got on well with the teenagers. And she actually said to me one time, can you come with me into first grade? Because I, I, I can't cope with them. I'm like, they're so cute. What do you mean? <laughs> so that is another interesting point is what I would call separate realities. For her, the little kids were terrifying because you, you they're like, they're moving around all over the place. You can't keep them in here. I'm like, yeah, because they're little. <laughs> That's fun. And I had the problem with the teenagers because I wanted to control them. She and I had very different experiences about the same students. And, it, and, and you'll see this in any relationship. If you say you watch a movie with um, a partner or, or a family member or a friend, and one of you is loving it and one of you is hating it, who's right? Well, you're both having your own unique experience based on your thinking about the movie or the sports or the music or the kids. Because if it was the kids or the movie that was producing the experience, we'd all have the same experience. I'm giving a long-winded answer to your question, but it's like when you see that I have found by understanding the separate realities idea, it's helped my relationships a lot. I, I have a lot more compassion and understanding for students and clients and, and family friends, because I see now that they don't see it the way I do. And that's okay. It's different. It's okay. And so therefore I'm being less judgmental. Therefore my brain is less reactive and I'm more peaceful. Even if someone's parking their car wrong or I don't even see it as wrong anymore. I just see it's their stuff. It's made relationships a lot easier. I'm a much more, it's embarrassing to admit, but I feel more compassion now than I ever have in my life when I see someone maybe doing it differently or even struggling. If they're struggling, it's see it from their point of view. Oh, that anxiety is coming from a misunderstanding. How can I help them with that? And, and I want to stress the word innocently because my teachers all, all taught me this. When we've gotten caught up, when we've been judgmental or we've made mistakes, it's an innocent misunderstanding. I would have done better if I'd known better. We can only do, my mother used to say this, oh, she's doing the best she can. And I think, really? That's the best you can do? <laughs> but if that's the thinking you have in the moment, that really is the best you can do. I can't do better than the thinking I'm having right now. And I even could apply that to the, the men that mugged and attacked me. They were doing the best they could with the really crappy thinking they were having in that moment. Now, this is not an excuse. It's not an excuse for bad behavior. It's an explanation. If I'm in a low mood, I'm going to have low mood behaviors and low mood anxieties. And, you know, but in, have you ever heard someone in a good mood say, I need to work on my self-esteem, <laughs> right? When, when we're in a good mood, our perspective is very different, right? Our perspective is broader, wider. It's we're available for fresh new thinking. And that's why Sidney Banks, who put these ideas together, he was always talking about looking for a good feeling. He actually said, listen for a good feeling, which 
sounds like a contradiction, but maybe people listening to our conversation, you and I are having a good time chatting, listening, like you're listening to us talk. How's the feeling? I hope it's lighter and enjoyable. And if it's making you think some deeper stuff, you're then feeling that thinking too. And the more we follow the good feeling, we're going to feel better. And so that that's what comes to me answering that. <laughs> no, that's great. Now, it is time to wrap up. I could carry on talking. <laughs> it's been mm-hmm. lovely. Oh, it's, what else would, now, I'll put all of your, the ways people can contact you on the webpage to, that goes with the mm-hmm. podcast. But how can great. people contact you? And what do you do? Like, t- like Thank you. Yes. Books, you do work with people too, don't you? Yes. Yeah. I, I'm a coach. I, I coach people one-on-one. I have book clubs, you know, based on the books. We just started a book club on, on very, we're just in chapter two. So if anybody wants to join where we talk about the ideas, very similar to this. I have a membership program that I've just launched, which is a great opportunity to be part of the book clubs and do Q and A's. And so you can find all the information on my website, which is my name.com, which is Hannah Studley and Hannah is spelled with a C H. So it's C H A N A S T U D L E Y.com. That's my website that has everything there. You can find me on Facebook. I have a Facebook group with almost 3000 people in it, which I post regularly in there with videos and stuff. And the books are all on Amazon. So there's three books out so far. I have ideas for at least three more novels and I'm working on a a nonfiction book where I'm collecting stories of people who've recovered from all kinds of mental health diagnosis, like everything from OCD to, to psychosis through the understanding of the three principles. It's incredible. And there's thousands of people around the world more than that who've recovered from seemingly hopeless diagnoses and are now living beautiful lives, medication-free, treatment-free, just through understanding how their experience is created. So yeah, I'm working on that right now. (laughs) Wow. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we go? The only thing I would say is if, if you don't hear anything else today, just hear the fact that you're not broken. You cannot be broken. If we're always feeling our thinking, that means that our body and our spirit is whole. Yes, we might have physical difficulties sometimes, but you, the essence of you, can never be broken. Don't let anyone tell you that. And if you feel broken, it's because you've got caught up in your thinking. And, and people like me and Karen, we're here to, to guide you and help you to come out of that illusion and you can come back to, to living your best life. Thank you so much, Hannah. My pleasure. It's been so much fun. It really has. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe and don't forget to rate and review this podcast and share it with your friends. Thanks so much for listening and I hope you're leaving with some thought-provoking information that can make a difference in your life. See you next time.